Hi, friends, and welcome back to Unearthing, our chats with organizers, leaders, and teachers about the powerful tools they've created to build justice. I'm Nico Chin, founder of Up With Community. We help people learn better together. Today, we're talking about a tool that I have been using extensively since the first day I found it, uh, the White Resiliency Framework. And we are blessed to have Craig White here with us to chat more about how to use this framework in the world and how to connect it to our greater liberation. This podcast is supported by all of our followers on Patreon and over at PayPal. You can help us continue to make great content like this over at www.upwithcommunity.org forward slash support. Craig, I'm really glad to be talking to you today. Thank you for joining me. Craig is, is uh, the founder of Craig White Consulting and has been training and coaching for several decades on both racial equity and LGBTQ equality. Craig, you and I get to work together quite often in the world, and I am eternally grateful for that. And it was in the course of that work that you introduced me to this concept of white resiliency that you had been developing over time. I wanted to dive right in and just ask, how did you create this? What brought you to pulling these ideas together in this format? It's mm, a great question, Nico. And first, let me say thank you uh, for the invitation to speak with you and your listeners and viewers today. Um, and it's, it's just always great to talk with you. Uh, so where did this come from? I'd, I've been doing racial equity work for, uh, as you say, a few too many years than I care to count. Um, but really in, in 2020, there was a, a big outpouring of interest among predominantly white individuals, organizations, and institutions, uh, partly in response to the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, partly in response to the Black Lives Matter uprisings. Um, I think folks woke up that there's something that's been here. Uh, it's been here for a long time. We haven't been working on it nearly to the degree that we need to. And so there was a lot of interest. A lot of folks grabbed books off the shelves. Um, one of those books was by Robin DiAngelo, a book called White Fragility. Uh, so in my work, I, I work with a lot of white affinity groups and help uh, coach white leaders around dismantling systems of racial privilege and advantage. And I was seeing that many of them had, had read White Fragility, were comfortable with this uh, term or concept that sometimes people who, who have grown up with the privileges of whiteness in the United States have not necessarily developed the, the skills and the tools and the comfort to have difficult conversations about race. Uh, and so what D'Angelo talks about is the, the patterns of defensiveness that can often shut down those conversations before they've even gotten started, or sometimes the dynamics that can derail the work from happening to recenter the, the comfort of, of whiteness. Um, so I was, I was encountering lots of leaders who had this critique, but what they said to me was, well, we know what we're doing wrong, but we're not sure what it looks like if we do it right. Uh, and the, the idea of racial resiliency has, has been around for centuries, right? Um, among black people, indigenous people, and other people of color. How do we survive and, and even thrive in the face of structural racism? Right, Frederick Douglass wrote about that, James Baldwin, lots of people have written about that. Um, but I couldn't find very much on the idea of racial resiliency for white people. 
I think the assumption is that that we're advantaged and privileged by the system. And so what is there to be resilient in the face of? But that came to a head in 2020 where we just didn't have the tools to be part of the conversations that many of us wanted to be in. Um, so it was really a, a fusion of those two ideas. Um, and the, the idea of white racial resiliency is that white people have the the, the strength, the confidence to enter into conversations about race and racism without defensiveness, without, without denial, and without centering themselves on their own needs. We can talk some about what the specifics of that look like later. Well, I, I, I'd love to go right to those specifics because one of the things that I have found really useful in the field with this tool is the list of characteristics of white resiliency and where you try to take this concept and make it really concrete for people's day-to-day -day lives. Can you talk through about, you know, how you see some of those characteristics working in the world where, which ones do you see being most challenging for people to put into action? Yeah, great question again. Um, and I should note that this is very much a living concept. Um, you know, I've got a one-page handout that I've, I've shared around pretty widely with folks that I work with and, and people are using it. But I don't consider this to be the final word on the matter. I think it's a, a conversation, Great. not an endpoint. Yeah. Uh, one of the key characteristics of, of white racial resiliency is an ability to, to see and to name how systems of racial power and privilege are working. Um, that is... It's a really key skill to have because otherwise it's all about the I. Yeah. And that winds up with um, many white leaders falling into these shame and blame spirals that again, center them and don't move the work forward. So, so the ability to see, name and analyze systems is really key. It means looking not just at internalized racism and not just at interpersonal manifestations of racism, but really looking at how racial privilege and disadvantage is built into the policies and practices and culture of our institutions, and also how it's looking at, at larger social structures. Um, and you know, for, for all of its ills, 2020 was actually a, a real boost for that because structural racism became a, a term that was very widely used in, the, you know, in all forms of media. You know, even um, some of the com conservative broadcasting networks were talking about structural racism. They would talk about it to say that it doesn't exist, but they were still using the term and, and naming it, giving people exposure to that idea. Uh, I think another piece is the ability to have these conversations without feeling personally defensive. Um, and, and that's a tricky one because the unconscious brain is, is already primed to receive new information, especially challenging new information as a threat. And so that defensive response can kick into place, um, I'm not sure of the exact workings, but the amygdala and you know, the other parts of the unconscious brain are, are going into fight or flight mode, right? And in social terms, what that often means is denial or defensiveness. I didn't do that. I didn't mean that. You heard that wrong and so forth. So what white resiliency calls us to do is to not have that unconscious response because that's just part of having a brain. But white resiliency says, when you have that defensive response, notice yourself being defensive and, and check it. 
or if you notice it in another white person in the group, gently check them on that, right? Say, I, I can see you're feeling really defensive. That might've been hard to hear, but there's actually a really important learning opportunity here. And so inviting people to pivot from that defensive reaction into a learning mm. place or into a place of staying in relationship yeah. with each other. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges that I've seen for folks trying to learn in this time is in this virtual space, there have been fewer in-person trainings. There have also been fewer in-person interactions to learn from and with. And for a lot of us, myself included, that are more the kinesthetic learner, <laughs> that really makes it, that makes it hard. Add on to that being an external processor and it's been a challenge. Um, you know, and, and one of the ways that I think um, I have often seen uh, white folks learn is, is through the more intellectual side, through the books. And I think that a lot of the characteristics you're talking about call us to learning outside of the books or in addition to books. What are some ways that you like to encourage folks who are seeking to develop their white resiliency to build it? Mm. Well, I think that that's exactly right, that this is, um, there is a head analytical part of this, which I'm very good at, right? All of my acculturation has been leading me in that direction. And, and those are the systems that I've succeeded within. But this work is equally as much in the heart and the spirit and the body. Um, and it's, it's really important to, to recognize that. And for me, that recognition brings a particular humility into it. That I, can, I can argue my way out of, out of anything. Um, but part of the skill I need to develop is to feel what I'm feeling uh, and to name it. If I'm feeling anger, to name what is that anger coming from? There's a violation of some sort. What is that violation? And how do I want to respond in the face of that violation? Or if I'm feeling grief, um, there's a loss. What is it that's, that's being lost? Yeah. In some cases, those... Um, for example, the feeling of loss, in some cases, that's a sign that there's some real growth happening, mm. right? When I lost the story that everything good that had come to me was through my own hard work, right? I had to grieve that, right? I, I grew up working class and, and kind of hard scrabble and, and wrestled to go to a good, a good college. Um, and that story was true. It was also true that being white and being cisgender male at every step of the way, the system was helping me achieve those things in a way that it wasn't providing those supports and resources for people of a different race, different gender than mine. And so it's holding that complexity. To hold that complex story, I had to let go of a simple story and there was some grief attached to that. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. So it sounds like a lot of that can happen in, in coaching or learning relationships where there is the safety to take those risks and, and being in relationship to particularly other white people that can help you on that journey. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, I see it happen pretty frequently in one-on-one -on -one relationships um, between trusted colleagues, between having a, a coach. Um, that's designated in that role. But a lot of my work involves helping organizations develop this as part of, your, of their organizational culture. Mm -hmm. um, too often, 
the, I, I work mostly with schools, foundations, and nonprofit organizations. And too often the organizational culture is set up around this, this white supremacy culture ideal of perfectionism, right? We can't get this wrong. This is too important. We don't want to do any harm. Um, and so we're, if we talk about race, we're going to get it exactly right every time. Well, that's just not possible. And the result is that the organizations don't wind up engaging around race. They don't wind up talking about race at all. Uh, and I, th I think the idea of resiliency says, get in there, get messy, make mistakes. You're gonna step on each other's toes. Yeah, some harm is probably gonna happen, but there's already harm happening in the silence. And so let's at least have the mistakes be part of a learning process rather than a silent perpetual harm process. Yeah. Yep, yep. That triggers really two questions for me. The first is, you know, sometimes when I'm inviting white folks to learn with other white folks, I will hear a very reasonable, in my opinion, response to say, you know, aren't I supposed to talk to other people of color? What will I learn from this other white person? And sometimes it feels icky, like, well, like we've been told we shouldn't gather only as white people. Like, isn't that what we're not supposed to do? Um, have you heard those things? And if so, how, how do you meet them when you do? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, I may be a little bit too queer to pull off a sports metaphor, but I'm gonna try. Um, it's, like the football it's like the football team taking the field without ever having practiced or played together, right? You can play and you're probably not gonna have a great game. Yeah. To me, the, the white coaching relationships, the white caucuses or affinity groups, that's the practice space, right? That's the space where we make lots of our mistakes. We step on each other's toes. We use the wrong terms. We use the wrong words. Our, our assumptions and our implicit biases are, are all on view because um, all that's there. And that's the mess that we need to work through. If we can work through at least some of that without people of color needing to be present for it again, right? because most BIPOC folks have experienced that many times, um, then I think that we have both the opportunity and the obligation to do some of that work in our own spaces. But it is very much the practice field. It is not the game, right? The game has to be transparent, multiracial work done with um, collaborative decision-making or some forms of balanced decision-making, redistribution of power, open acknowledgement of where resources are and who's controlling them. Um, because we're really trying to create something new here and why people can't create that new stuff on, on our own. What we can do is build some of our muscles, get rid of some of that defensiveness before we step onto the playing field. Yeah, I love that idea of practice. And as I was sitting with this, you know, one of the questions I was wondering was if an organization took on white resiliency as a value or as, as a component of leadership, particularly for their white leaders, what is something they might be doing today that they would do differently afterwards? And I know maybe there's like 30 examples of that, but just to help people see how this works when you got a group of white folks saying together we are, we are going to take white resiliency seriously and we're gonna to try to weave this together for ourselves. What shifts in that organization or that team or what's one way you could describe a shift for that organization or team? Yeah, uh, first I would wanna say if an organization is saying we wanna really build our muscles around racial resiliency, 
that building white racial resiliency is one piece of that. Um, yep. But recognizing, naming, and celebrating the hundreds of manifestations of racial resiliency that are practiced by people of color is, is equally, if not more important. Um, if we don't do that, then we're still centering the white people, which is you know what we don't want to do. Yep. Uh, so what looks different? I think what looks different is um, there can be a difficult conversation about a policy or a program or a piece of organizational culture, and the white people in the room can receive that as information without feeling personally defensive or personally attacked, even if they're the people that created the policy. I think what it looks like is that there can be some personal feedback. Craig, when you did this, it really landed this way with me. That made me really uncomfortable. I'd like you to do better next time. I can receive that without going into that defensive moves or putting it back on the person. I can receive that as the gift that it's intended, right? And use it to improve my own work. Uh, I think it looks like when there's a racial dynamic that needs to be named, the people of color in the room can assume that some white person in the room will be able to mention that, to be the first one that brings it up, rather than assuming that it has to be their job and if they don't say anything, nobody's gonna say anything. Um, which doesn't mean they can't say anything, it means they're liberated, where it's their choice to say something or not, but it doesn't all rest on. Um, I think it looks like white people having trusting uh, reciprocal relationships so that when, you know, of course, each of us is going to have those defensive moments. And when I do, I've got a colleague who can just say, Craig, you're looking a little defensive. Take a breath and think about how you want to respond here, mm -hmm. right? To give me a second to do that uh, emotional check. Uh, I think it looks like uh, one of the key aspects of, of white resiliency is centering the voices, the experience, and the needs of Black people and Indigenous people and people of color. So I think it includes some practice around looking at when the needs of whiteness are being centered um, and, and, and pressing pause on that and to yeah. say, well, if we weren't centering whiteness here, what would we be looking at instead? Not needing to have an answer to that question, but opening up the door for the so that's just a few examples. No, those are great examples. And, you know, as I was listening to you, I, I wanted to add one to the list that I feel like I've seen in the work, which is when we step into white resiliency as an, and, and racial resiliency, we're really taking ownership for the outcomes of equity. Yes, that's and, right. And what I really think is, uh, you know, in 2020, we saw so many organizations put out these statements. And then this real kind of... Um, reaction to that in the field that was, those are just empty words and your organization isn't going to do it. And in a lot of place, places, that was exactly what happened. Nothing. Uh, right. And I think you can't be pursuing racial resiliency within your organization and have that outcome because you see the outcome you want for yourself, for your people and for other people. And, uh, and there's this, there's this energy and this momentum that comes from that ownership where sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, what should we do about X? And I'm like, well, I could tell you an answer. 
But if you actually worked on racial resiliency, you would see the answers within yourself more consistently and you wouldn't really need me as much. You know? right, or at least have some more interesting questions, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is also part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, Nico. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th I think okay, another well. thing, I, I would be remiss if I didn't name this. Um, what I see in organizations that have really le leaned into this idea of resiliency is a relaxation and a lot more laughter, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Moving from this place of, oh, anytime anybody names race, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be painful. Everybody's going to go away sad or angry or guilty. And instead, it's moving to a place of, oh, this is messy, but we're all in it together. Oh, our, um, oh, did you hear that thing I said? Like, my unconscious biases came up again in front of everybody. That was so embarrassing. And everybody's like, yes, it was, Craig. <laughs> Your upbringing got you again. Oh, I know. And it because it is, you know, racism is a fiction. White people are not superior. It's a ridiculous idea. And, and if we can get to the place together where we're laughing at that ridiculous idea and taking joy in building something else instead, it's just a lot more fun to be in the work with each other. And it makes it humanly possible. You know, I just don't think human beings can sustain ourselves only in the negative and oppressive and depressive. And so there really has to be this, this balance as we move through them. You know, I'm curious how you have seen the application or connections of racial resiliency to other identities in the world. Oh, that's a great question. Um, and, and I really need to give a shout out. I teach a class on equity and education at Warren Wilson College. And so I need to give a shout out to my students there um, who are the ones that really named that, that dynamic. Um, it was a, in this particular year, it was a mostly female identified class and, and they took this idea. And uh, we're talking about working with men and men's ability to have difficult conversations about sexism, about gender uh, privilege and, and preferences. And, and then that sort of merged into um, cisgender privilege and, and, um, and sort of centering cis narratives and, and the idea of binary gender. And that led into to lesbian, gay, bi, and queer folks talking about, you know, we really wish straight people had more resiliency that like when we just come out, people freak out. I'm like, have enough resiliency to, to accept me as who I am. And it just grew into this, you know, class and ability and, and everything else. And uh, it was a it was a beautiful conversation because in the middle of that, all of us were recognizing that each of us had our own resiliency work to do in certain areas where we haven't had as much exposure or opportunities to cross lines of difference. And all of us had places where we really wish the people on the other side of the other line would build their own resiliency to be able to accept us and to hear us and to, to just be part of difficult conversations with us. Yeah. Mm. If, we're, if we're looking for, for Dr. King's beloved community, I think it takes a certain amount of resiliency in being able to, to be in relationship across lines of difference. And to, to love that, to be excited about that rather than to be afraid of it. And you've connected this concept a couple of times to liberation. 
how do you see resiliency being connected to our liberation? I, I have to credit another group here that I can't name for confidentiality purposes, but it, it came up in the context of, uh, it was a white affinity group talking about how structural racism has hurt white people, uh, which, you know, in theory that gets named sometimes um, because the, because white people, many of us, most of us have, have gained materially, we've gained in terms of power and prestige, the idea that, that structural racism has hurt us uh, can be more difficult to talk about. And it's certainly not comparable, right? There's no way that it's comparable. But if we don't look at that damage, then we're holding ourselves back from our own liberation. And I think one of the ways that it hurts us is through racial segregation when we don't have meaningful relationships and meaningful learning opportunities across lines of racial difference, then we don't build these resiliency skills. We, we build this fragility um, and, and defensiveness that keeps us out of those relationships. And it keeps us from those learning opportunities. Uh, we become part of our own subjugation by keeping ourselves out of those relationships because we're afraid of those relationships because we're afraid of what we might hear because we're not ready to respond or receive what we might hear and so for me the liberation piece is saying i can be in relationship with anybody no matter what the world has told me is true and i can hear anything from anybody no matter that the world says it's going to break me or hurt me I can receive it. And uh, yeah, are there some tough truths that we need to hear? Yeah. Um, I've, I've cried a lot over the last few years and, and I'm actually okay with that because I think grief and, and tears are part of what's necessary for, for true healing. Mm. Well, thank you, Craig. Yeah, thank you, Nico. You know, that really covers what I had hoped to talk about today. And, and I remain grateful for you uh, collecting these ideas and these conversations and these insights into this framework. Um, I look forward to more people getting to, to see it and interact with it. You know, as a woman of color, uh, I'm often working in relationship to white communities. So I may not be like in the caucuses in the same way that you are. Um, and it helps me understand my own journey of resiliency as I think about it in relationship to white resiliency and the larger concept of racial resiliency as a whole. So thank you for that opportunity. Mm, thank you for that. Yeah. You know, Nico, one thing I would add, um, if we have just a moment, Ooh, yeah, go for is it. that this is a, um, one is like, a, it's, a, it's a concept in development. So please, you know, as folks use it, let us know how it's going. Let us know what works and feel free to build it out. Um, I don't own it. And also, I would really invite folks to use it in the spirit in which it's intended as a, a tool for interacting with each other with, with grace, uh, with patience, with compassion, with acknowledging that we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way, like we make mistakes on the practice field, um, and to, to not weaponize it. Um, and to not beat people up with you just need to be more resilient. That's, that's contrary to the spirit and the concept of the concept. Yeah. 
Mm. I think it's a great place to leave it, Craig. Thank right. you. Thank you very much for the conversation today, Anita. Yeah, you can check out all of our podcasts and videos over at upwithcommunity.org. And you can help us keep more conversations like this coming into your earbuds and your homes at upwithcommunity.org forward slash support.